Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. How come states frequently pursue programs, policies, and regulations that obviously harm the economy as a whole, are a net detriment to the whole society and economy, but which confer outsized benefits onto the so-called special interest groups? Why do regulations so often cause results that are the opposite of what the public was told they were supposed to do? Why do economies swing wildly through boom and bust cycles? And do destructive events like wars and natural disasters really stimulate the economy? In this episode of the Dangerous History Podcast, I'm going to talk about some economic concepts and theories that offer some answers to these questions, as well as some other economic concepts and theories that I believe can teach us some valuable lessons that not only might help us understand the economy better, but also have some potential to improve our own individual lives. CJ here with a new honorary title to add to my collection, all of which up till now has been self-bestowed, such as the one-man revolution, the renaissance man for the new dark age, etc., or my official business title within the DHP organization, which, by the way, consists of me. And my official title, again bestowed upon myself, is Chief Narrative Disruptor, but I've got a new one that was not bestowed upon me by myself, like Napoleon Bonaparte crowning himself emperor. I've got a new one thanks to a listener named Dixon, who referred to me in an email as Anarchy's Smooth Operator. So one of the links in the show notes for this episode will be a link to my new theme music. Dixon, thank you. Anarchy's smooth operator I took as a huge compliment. So in this episode, which I believe is going to be 110, episode 110 of the Dangerous History Podcast, I'm going to be looking at my second block of seven concepts and theories. The first one I did back in episode 109, and the third and final one, again, I'm going to be doing as a Patreon bonus episode just for those who support the Dangerous History podcast via Patreon at a rate of a dollar or more per episode. The first batch that I did in last episode were concepts and theories all having to do with power. This batch is going to be all concepts and theories that have to do with economics in one way or another. And the last batch is going to be kind of a miscellaneous grab bag island of misfit toys of concepts and theories. 
But speaking of Patreon, I have... It's been a good week. I have four new individuals to give big thank yous to for helping out the show via Patreon. Big thanks go out to Mike, Alex, Winston, and Carlos. Thank you all very, very much for signing up to help out the show over at patreon.com slash profcj. And again, as a reminder to all of you, if you sign up to support the show for at least $1 per episode, and more is certainly appreciated, but for just a minimum of a dollar per episode, I'll thank you by name in the next show that I make, and you'll have access to special bonus episodes available nowhere else. So I hope you'll consider signing up, if you've not already, over at Patreon to support the Dangerous History Podcast. One more administrative note before I launch into the meat of this episode. Soon after I publish this episode, probably... Mm, if I publish it when I think I'm going to be able to publish it, it'll be the following morning. I'm heading out of town to a family reunion for a week, and I'm going to have, at best, only occasional internet access. I'm going to be in a somewhat remote sort of cabin situation, so I'm going to be semi-incommunicado. So please don't get your feelings hurt if I'm not as responsive as I normally am over email, social media, etc. I just can't guarantee that I'm going to have regular internet access. However, I am going to be bringing some reading materials, some research material with me, and as a result, I will be working on material and notes and so on for future DHP episodes, even though, as far as internet goes, I'm going to be largely off-grid. I am going to have power and running water, but off-the-grid mostly as far as the internet is concerned. And so I will not be asleep at the DHP wheel, even though I won't be plugged in to the Matrix as much as usual. And soon after my return, I'm going to be working on recording and editing both my next regular Dangerous History podcast episode, as well as the next Patreon supporters bonus episode, which, again, is going to be the third and final installment of this series of 21 Key Concepts and Theories. It's going to be my last block of seven. By the way, just a heads up, I'm going to be a guest on Declaring Your Independence with Ernest Hancock on Wednesday, July 20th, which is the week after I return. So I'm very much looking forward to that, and I hope you'll check it out as well. Anyway, like I said before, today's concepts and theories all have to do with economics in various ways. If you're a person who's not studied economics a lot, I think you'll learn a lot from this episode, and hopefully I'll spark some interest for you to go and do your own reading and research and learning and thinking and so on, because I think you really ought to, if you want to be a well-functioning human being in the modern world, you really ought to have some amount of a handle on economics. Not that everybody needs to be Bob Murphy or somebody like that, but you should at least have a grasp on a lot of the basic key concepts. So if you're an economics empty cup, so to speak, I think you'll get a good start on some important concepts that can give you things to kind of follow up on. Probably, though, a lot of you in this audience are above average in your economic literacy, and doubtless at least a few of you are much more economically literate than I am. But I think that even those of you who have a lot of econ knowledge, even if you know about all the concepts and theories I'm going to cover today, you'll probably still learn something useful or valuable somewhere, either just, you know, because I explain something 
that you already knew, but I explained it in a different way, or I used a different way to illustrate it than you had previously thought of before, or perhaps because I connect some of these economic concepts to our kind of daily individual lives in ways you may or may not have thought of before, or hopefully I'll I'll do all of the above. So anyway, introductions over, let's catch up on our list of 21 concepts and theories where we left off last time, which will be with number eight. Concepts and theories number eight is going to be something that's known as public choice theory, or sometimes referred to as public choice economics or something along those lines, sometimes just referred to as public choice. And I'm also going to mention a related concept called rent seeking, which is so closely intertwined to public choice theory that I decided not to give it its own concepts and theories entry and just to make it kind of a corollary here. Now, the public choice approach is something that should be obvious, but people often don't think of things this way, I think because they're propagandized into not seeing it this way. I think naturally we normally would. Public choice, the the approach of public choice economists is applying economic analyses to the political realm with the explicit understanding that lobbyists, politicians, and government bureaucrats pursue their own self-interest as they perceive it, which should be common sense. And most people, I think, always see it that way with the lobbyists. But there's a tendency for so many people to believe that politicians and so-called civil servants are these noble altruistic people that are just trying their hardest to pursue some sort of public good. And yeah, they occasionally make mistakes and whatever, but they are at least trying their best. Now, probably a lot of you in this audience already, the first thing you're thinking is that's ridiculous and whatever. And I'm with you, but believe it or not, this concept of applying hard nosed economic analyses based on self-interest to politics, was not even seriously done in academia anywhere until about the 1950s. And once people started to do it, people like James Buchanan and uh, Tulloch, I think his first name was Gordon, Gordon Tulloch, some other prominent economists, some of whom later went on to win major awards and Nobels and whatever, once they began to apply the economic framework of understanding people's motivations and incentives to government questions, they figured out a lot of really important key insights that help you understand why the systems we have are so screwed up and why basically it's inevitable that they're going to be screwed up. So just a few of what I at least think are key insights of public choice theory. One is in regard to voters. Public choice theorists describe voters as being rationally ignorant of the details of politics and issues and whatever. Now, most of us, if we're paying attention, would agree that most voters are pretty darn ignorant. But public choice theorists say they're rationally ignorant, meaning they've got incentives to not really put a whole lot of thought and effort into becoming truly educated about a lot of issues. It's rational for voters to be ignorant about a lot of things because, A, they have lives, right? They have jobs, they have families to take care of, they have other obligations. They can't spend 24-7 studying the fine print of every bill coming out of Congress or whatever, let alone 
spend enough time with a, a legal dictionary to know what half the stuff in there means. And the other reason, reason B, I guess, that they're rationally ignorant, is because deep down on some instinctive level, voters know that their vote really, the odds of it making the difference in the grand scheme of things is so minuscule as to, for practical purposes, be zero. I mean, you're more likely to win the lottery than you are to have your one vote make the difference in some election. Unless you're talking, I guess, about a mayoral race in a town of like 20 people. Public choice theorists often point out, in contrast, the way the average voter doesn't put that much thought and research into how they vote, and yet that same person is very likely to put a lot of thought and research into choices they'll make as consumers, especially major purchases. So the same person that votes without a whole lot of serious research and votes almost kind of whimsically might spend just countless hours doing research trying to figure out which car they want to buy or even which cell phone they want to buy. And the reasons are that these things actually affect an individual person's life a lot more than one vote in one election. And it's their own money that they're directly investing into the purchase. And it has immediate personal consequences if they make a poor choice. In addition to that, public choice theorists tell us that voters tend to vote more based on what they call expressive interests rather than on trying to rationally choose beneficial policies or the best candidate for the job. Expressive interests. You can think of this almost as just being like wanting to identify with your ideological tribe, wanting to virtue signal that you stand for the right values and the right issues and whatever. And really, I would describe it myself as even being kind of a cathartic thing, right? Don't you think that a lot of voters, the voting, really what it comes down to is a feeling of catharsis that like, oh, yeah, you know, I voted against the more evil of two evils or whatever. It's more about that for most voters, most of the time, than it is about some rational calculation of the best policies and so on. It's huge, huge. Voting for a lot of people, probably the vast majority, more about virtue signaling, more about tribalism, more about catharsis than about trying to rationally solve problems. This does not surprise me at all. Probably it doesn't surprise many of you in this audience, but to the general public, even though they mostly do vote based on so-called expressive interests, they would be aghast at somebody pointing out this heretical notion out loud, at somebody saying, yeah, most voters are just irrational people trying to express some kind of, I don't even know what, cathartic, ideological, flag-waving, tribal identity. I guess that would be another, another related idea, right? Identity politics, that whole concept. So for these and many other reasons... Voters cannot be counted on to be rational. And there's a pretty good book by an economist named, I think, Brian Kaplan called The Myth of the Rational Voter. And that's one that I will put as one of the Amazon affiliate links in the show notes for this episode. Now, when it comes to government bureaucrats, public choice economists tell us that their incentives are ultimately more than anything else, to grow their department's size, budget, resources, etc. And that is way more of a priority to them in practice than whatever thing it is they're supposed to be regulating or whatever problem they're supposed to be solving. And that, in fact, bureaucrats are very good 
at manipulating politicians in order to get what they want, which again is usually more, more budget, more resources, whatever. Now you have to understand, and this is perhaps one of the most important insights of public choice theory that because of its ability to intervene in the economy, the state has the ability to concentrate benefits. In other words, to give large benefits to small groups of people by giving subsidies, preferential regulation, bailouts, or whatever, whatever other privilege or favor or whatever to a quote unquote special interest. So they can concentrate benefits while at the same time dispersing costs of that policy among the entire population and economy as a whole. So, you know, you steal a couple bucks from every single American, and then that gives you a giant sack of cash that you can give to one guy, right? That's, you know, kind of metaphorically, but in, in essence, that's, that's what happens. So just a couple of very blatant large-scale examples of this sort of stuff. The U.S. Department of Agriculture policies pretty much across the board, right? They impose various sorts of costs on the average American, the vast majority of whom are not involved in agriculture and are not employed by Monsanto, ConAgra, etc. So the vast majority of Americans pay these costs that the government then, in the form of subsidies and whatnot, is able to hand these giant concentrated benefits, sometimes amounting to billions of dollars, to major agricultural corporations. Concentrate benefits, disperse the costs. And then there are lots of micro-examples within the USDA. For example, America's sugar policy, which is geared towards helping out a tiny handful of giant sugar growers, many of whom are billionaires in the United States, most of them in Florida. And these policies help them out to the tune of millions upon millions of dollars. And they make sugar more expensive for the American people as a whole through a combination of subsidies, tariffs, and and things against foreign sugar coming in. And not only does the United States as a whole pay financially with more expensive sugar, it also harms our health because this combined with subsidies for corn that encourage corn production results in so many things in the United States being sweetened, not with cane sugar, but with one of the few things that's worse for you, which is high fructose corn syrup. So in the case of sugar, the American people pay financially and in large part in terms of their health as well, so that a handful of already super rich sugar barons can get richer. And it's amazing how many cases of this you find it ultimately walks back to a handful or, or even just one politically important state. And in the case of the American sugar barons, it's Florida, which is an important swing state in elections. The same reason why not the only reason, but it's part of why elderly retirees so often get whatever they want, no, no matter the cost. Again, Florida is an important swing state, and retirees are concentrated there in large numbers. It's also why for so long the United States had the embargo on Cuba. Same thing. And why all the favorable policies to corn? Well, could it be because of the Iowa caucus? Another example of concentrating benefits and dispersing costs would be the war on drugs which harms and costs the American people as a whole in like more ways than you could count, but is really, really good for a handful of companies that make a ton of money off of the war on drugs, as well as for the government employees themselves involved in the departments that, that prosecute the war on drugs. And another example would be the military-industrial complex, which, again, 
disperses tons of costs on the American people and then concentrates the benefits in enormous amounts in some cases to a handful of giant military contractors with perhaps Lockheed being one of the most notorious. And you can Google an article from a while back called Lockheed Stock and Two Smoking Barrels. I forget the author's name, uh, but it, it, it exposed a lot of Lockheed hanky-panky corruption going back, I think, to the maybe early days of the Bush administration, something like that. Now, these special interests that benefit, that receive these concentrated benefits from the state, from various policies of subsidy or, or lucrative contracts or whatever, preferential regulation, whatever it is, these special interests will fight tooth and nail 24-7 and donate heavily to politicians in order to keep getting their way. Because to them, the benefits are enormous. It's not only financial survival that's at stake for them, it's potentially millions or billions of dollars that's at stake. So they're willing to invest quite a lot into making sure they keep getting their policies the way they want it. Whereas by contrast, the general public is extremely unlikely to put nearly as much effort, even a fraction of it, into the fight against these sorts of policies that harm the economy and the nation as a whole. Because, A, again, they have lives, and they're busy and trying to put food on their family, as W once said. And B, the amount that any one of these items adds to one's taxes or other costs is usually in and of itself not, not a big deal. Now, when you add up all the different special interest costs that are imposed upon the American people, it is quite a big amount. But if you just take one in isolation, it's like a few dollars here, a few dollars there. So just to illustrate it with an example, an agricultural corporation might have billions at stake in keeping a particular subsidy in place. That same subsidy, while it causes a lot of major problems to the economy as a whole and distorts it, and might be in many people's eyes wrong and unfair, only costs each individual taxpayer a few bucks a year. And so, predictably, the agri-corporation will go to the mat for billions of dollars. The average voter will not go to the mat to try to keep a few bucks a year. Concentrated benefits, dispersed costs. Now, a related concept I just want to mention a little bit is the concept of rent-seeking. And no, it has nothing to do with, you know, you finding an apartment to rent or whatever. What rent-seeking is talking about is when someone tries to increase their own wealth without actually creating any additional value or wealth. In other words, they're not doing something productive to grow the overall pie of the economy. They're just trying to increase their the size of their slice of the pie at the expense of everybody else. And this is normally done via some sort of state intervention, which could include state-sanctioned monopoly, could include subsidies, favorable price controls, regulations that privilege you and or harm your potential competitors. Basically, rent-seeking is the political economist's term to describe all the different ways that firms seek to gain some sort of artificial advantage from state power. This is when companies, again, are not trying to, to produce better products at better prices to gain your business voluntarily and thereby increase their income, but instead are relying on state policy to funnel more money their way one way or another. Concept number nine is regulatory capture. And again, I'll have a little corollary concept to this, which is what's known as the revolving door. 
This is actually a concept that, to my understanding at least, comes largely out of public choice economics itself, although there were some earlier people who kind of figured it out empirically, just from the historical record. And this is actually fairly simple. Regulatory capture is the term used for the phenomenon whereby regulatory agencies end up actually serving the interests of the industry they are supposed to be regulating. And, you know, supposedly they're regulating some industry in the name of some ephemeral public welfare, general good, public interest, or whatever other cliche you want to insert. But in reality, they're actually serving the interests of the industry that supposedly they're keeping an eye on. Although I don't think he ever used the actual term regulatory capture, although I could be wrong, at least not that I can recall, though. Um, Historian Gabriel Kolko, whose work I've mentioned multiple times on this show, wrote a lot about the phenomenon of regulatory capture in books like The Triumph of Conservatism and Railroads and Regulation. What he found was that in many different industries, from railroads to meatpacking to banking and many, many more, what would happen is the large firms in an industry usually are the driving force behind having the government start regulating that industry in the first place, which is contrary to the mythological view that most people are still given from popular history, right, which is that the robber barons wanted a free market because in a free market they could have monopolies and cartels and whatever. It's actually the opposite of that, as Colco showed like 60 years ago or so. The largest firms in an industry typically want to reduce uh, competition, try and more or less freeze things where they are so that they don't have to keep competing anymore and they can artificially raise their costs by reducing their production and so on. Problem is, in a truly open, free, and competitive market, this doesn't work, at least not for very long. And so these sorts of firms who want to have a less competitive, more cartelized industry typically turn to the state in the form of some sort of regulatory agency. Oftentimes, they will flat out lie to the public. And these same firms that want regulation and want to reduce competition will almost be sort of like Br'er Rabbit, and and to the public they'll be saying, oh no, please don't regulate us, oh gee golly gosh, don't throw us in that briar patch. And in reality, they're the actual source of the move to have regulation. But of course they can't be open and upfront about their motivation, because if the public thinks that J.P. Morgan wants to have the Federal Reserve set up, the public's going to be against the Federal Reserve. But if the public actually is, is uh, propagandized into believing that a bunch of high-minded noble reformers want the Federal Reserve System set up, the public is much more likely to go, oh, gee whiz, yeah, 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 we need the Federal Reserve to keep an eye on J.P. Morgan. Looking at least at American history, and I'm sure something similar you can find in most countries' history in the modern era, but looking just at American history of the past hundred plus years or so, it's actually pretty darn difficult to find a major government regulatory agency that isn't at least to some degree under the control of and working for the large firms in the industry that it's supposedly regulating on behalf of, quote-unquote, the general good, the public welfare, etc. So just a few examples that are considered by many experts to be cases of captured regulatory agencies in relatively recent years would include the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, 
the Federal Aviation Administration, and also, by the way, till it was ended by Jimmy Carter in the late 70s, the Civil Aeronautics Board, which basically cartelized airline travel, reduced competition, and kept prices for airline travel artificially high for decades. Also, the Federal Communications Commission, the Federal Reserve, the Food and Drug Administration, and the Securities and Exchange Commission, just to name a few prominent examples. And of course, the more left-leaning types who think that regulation is the solution to all of the corporate misbehavior in the economy either are completely ignorant of the concept of regulatory capture, or the more intelligent and educated among them are aware of it, but they somehow believe that if you just have the right reforms and so on, you'll suddenly make these regulatory agencies actually do what they supposedly were created to do, which is not what they were created to do anyway. It's all a big con. And you can go all the way back to the Interstate Commerce Commission, created not that long after the Civil War, and find a captured agency that was largely pushed for and run by and for the railroad companies, not for, quote-unquote, the general public. And of course, the U.S. Department of Agriculture has been pretty much captured since its inception back in the 1860s under noted corporate tool Abraham Lincoln. Now, again, left-leaning types would argue what's needed are reforms, maybe some things like oversight, more oversight, that's what we need, or more transparency or, you know, whatever it is to make these regulatory agencies serve, quote-unquote, the public good, whatever the heck that nebulous term is supposed to mean, rather than the interests of the corporations they're supposed to be keeping an eye on. By contrast, radical free market types like myself would argue that that's a fantasy that's just never going to work. It's never going to happen. And that as long as you have a state around that can intervene in the economy, regulatory capture is going to happen like water flowing downhill. Okay, one way or another. And people like me would point out that, as we've seen just in the last few decades, every time you try some new reform to, quote unquote, take money and special interests out of politics like water flowing around an obstacle, the money, the corruption, the influence is going to just flow in some other way. So instead, folks like me would argue that the better solution is a real, not phony crony, market. And that market discipline and real competition is going to do a better job of protecting consumers' interests than some government bureaucracy with all of its messed up incentives and opportunities for corruption. And by the way, don't misunderstand me and straw man me. I'm not saying that in a truly free competitive market, there would never be any fraud or any misdeeds or any corporate misbehavior. But that the discipline of real marketplace competition has a better track record historically of punishing those who do bad things than government regulatory agencies, which at best, at best, are asleep at the wheel, and more often than not, are actually actively enabling corporate misbehavior. Now, I want to briefly mention a related concept to this, which is what's known as the revolving door. The revolving door in this context refers to the phenomenon by which individuals frequently move back and forth between government and private sector in cases where you have regulatory capture going on. So in other words, they move back and forth between being legislators and or some sort of regulators in the government on the one hand, and then working within the industries for the corporations that are being regulated on the other hand. 
And the reason that they do this and they, they go back and forth is because their work in one side of the deal improves their desirability as an individual on the other side. So in other words, working in the government gives you a lot of contacts and experience, how to navigate this stuff that, that you can then put to use on behalf of a firm that contracts with or is regulated by the government and vice versa, working in, in private industry in corporations that are being regulated gives you at least alleged expertise on the industry that might make you desirable in the eyes of a legislator or regulatory agency to hire you. Now, there are lots and lots of examples of individuals doing this of very diverse levels of notoriety and how much money they make and so on. But Dick Cheney is a very high profile individual example of the revolving door. If you go look at his entire career going all the way back, you know, 40, 50 years or more, you see he goes back and forth between various posts in the government and working for various military contractors. And regardless of what his job title is, he seems to be increasing the profits of those military contractor corporations. You can also look at how many people who've worked in the financial related parts of the government, whether at the Federal Reserve, the Treasury Department, the Securities Exchange Commission, whatever, how many of them also have worked in big Wall Street banks and that sort of thing, right? I mean, this is really, really blatantly obvious in a lot of cases. And there are countless less prominent examples of people who are not at the tippy top, who are not famous, you know, cabinet secretaries and vice presidents and whatever, doing this in their career. The revolving door is simply a huge part of how regulatory capture operates in modern America. And yeah, they periodically try to put rules in place saying, oh, you got to wait a year before you can go work for an industry that you used to regulate or whatever. But these things never work. There's always a way around it. There's always some, you know, you put an obstacle in the way of water flowing downhill and the water just kind of flows around or over the object. Maybe at best, there might be some little nickel and dime reforms that could chip away at this a tiny bit. But again, I'm skeptical that the problem is really solvable. As long as you keep having the situation with a powerful state with tons of power and resources to mess around in the economy, this type of stuff will continue. And I don't believe, at least, that the solution to this sort of thing is to simply give the state more authority to mess around in the economy. The fact of the matter is that in America today, on the whole, corporations typically spend far, far more money on lobbying the government than they do on R&D, research and development, actually coming up with better products and improving existing products and so on. And I got to say, from their perspective, I don't really blame them. They're just responding to the system and the incentives the way they are. The fact of the matter is, the way things are today, lobbying DC tends to, most of the time, provide a much bigger financial return on investment to companies than does R&D, making better products. And if you don't lobby, if you don't lobby, some competitor or opponent of yours might and get an advantage over you. So as long as you've got a state that's got all sorts of powers to mess around and intervene in the economy, the, the reality is wealthy special interests are, absolutely are, going to devote a lot of resources to ensuring the state is their friend and not their enemy. And this cozy relationship between big government and big corporations is going to just keep getting cozier. Now, concept and theory number 10 is a theory to explain the business cycle. 
It's what's known as Austrian business cycle theory. It comes from the so-called Austrian school of economics, which, if you don't know, has nothing to do with the specific economy of the country of Austria. It's simply called the Austrian school because most of the early economists who kind of developed these concepts and theories that define it happen to be from Austria. In fact, I think they were all from Vienna. And the Austrian business cycle theory is simply a theory to try to explain why it is that economies in the modern era seem to go through these boom and bust cycles. What's the cause of it? How do you deal with it, etc.? And there are a lot of people way more expert in this than I am, gonna, but I'm going to do my best to explain it in my own terms. Austrian business cycle theory is based on the premise that production and saving rather than consumption and spending, are what really drive an economy and grow it, in contrast to the more popular Keynesian school of economics who say the opposite, that it's consumption and spending that really grow and drive an economy. Now, Keynesians, and this is named after John Maynard Keynes, the British economist of the early 20th century, Keynesians, who are opponents of the Austrian school, say that the boom and bust cycle has more to do with kind of just problems inherent to industrial, uh, to industrial capitalism, such as unequal distributions of wealth and a tendency toward overproduction in some industries and so-called animal spirits, whereby investors and entrepreneurs kind of get wildly over-optimistic during a boom and then get wildly pessimistic during a bust. And this is just sort of human nature going too nutty one way or the other. The Austrian school doesn't agree with this explanation of the business cycle. Austrian school economists say that the roots of the business cycle ultimately lie in the banking system and the way it's operated and the way the state is involved with it. They say that the banking system, the way it operates in most modern economies, has a tendency to send false signals to entrepreneurs to cause distortions in the economy, to misallocate resources and so on, all of which in the short term causes a boom, a bubble in certain sectors, two of the most common, by the way, are the stock market and real estate, but that sooner or later, this boom inevitably leads to a bust. These bubbles inevitably, sooner or later, have to burst because you've got unsustainable economic patterns of production that will fail, and that when things bust, the economy is actually trying to reallocate things to better uses. So here's how, at least my layman's explanation of how this all works. You have a central bank, such as the Federal Reserve in the United States, or the Bank of England in the UK, or whatever equivalent in whatever country, which if it is a central bank, has the ability to control regular banks in the country and to essentially control the overall supply and availability and price of money and credit in an economy. And the Austrians say a boom in the economy, a bubble, right, starts when the central bank artificially boosts the supply of money and credit in the economy. And the most common way they do this is simply by holding interest rates down below what the natural market level of interest would actually be. And so there's more money and credit, and in a modern economy, credit is essentially treated as money flooding into the economy than there normally would be. This is then further exacerbated by the practice of fractional reserve banking, whereby banks lend out a lot more money than they actually have on deposit. 
And so the money gets multiplied, the money and credit get multiplied in the economy. Now, this leads to a short-term artificial boom as individuals and businesses find it's suddenly way easier to get money and credit. And so they begin a lot more projects and and enterprises and a lot of long-term spending and construction projects and so on. And the artificially low interest rates, the easy money, for lack of a better term, this sends false signals to investors and entrepreneurs and consumers. It kind of indicates that consumers are deferring consumption in order to invest for the future when they really aren't doing that. You see, if you don't have interest rates being artificially manipulated, when the interest rate is falling, it usually means that people are spending less and saving and investing more. And this means that credit is more readily available. And if credit is more readily available, interest rate is going to be lower. But when this is done just arbitrarily by a central bank, you've got this this signal being sent into the economy that is simply false. The interest rate isn't going down because people are are saving and investing more. It's going down just because of central bank fiat. And so what's really happening is that money and credit have just been artificially inflated. But the actual underlying resources and productive capacity of the economy hasn't actually been increased, at least not in proportion to the, the growth of money and credit and not necessarily accurately reflecting consumer desires and so on. And so the economy is not only experiencing a bubble, but in the process, resources are getting misallocated. Things are getting distorted. Resources within the economy are getting allocated to places they really wouldn't otherwise go if this artificial boom situation wasn't happening. A great metaphor, I can't remember who I heard this from, it might have been economist Bob Murphy, but anyway, it's a great metaphor. The metaphor is, if you had a master bricklayer who was building a building, and what if he got conned into thinking he had more bricks to work with than he really does? And this is a a metaphor for the central bank artificially increasing the the availability of credit in an economy. What if a master bricklayer got conned into thinking he's got more bricks to work with in building a building than he really does, right? Well, this might cause him to build a structure very differently from how he might build it if he had an accurate understanding of how many bricks he had, right? He might build things kind of a little bit frivolously. He might add on some just kind of ornamental things that he otherwise wouldn't and so on. In other words, he's going to start building a structure thinking he's got more bricks than he does. And he's going to not ultimately be able to complete the structure that he's building. And so eventually, he's going to realize that he doesn't have enough bricks. And when he does, there's going to be a problem, and the building is going to have to be maybe partially demolished and redone or whatever. And this is a metaphor for when the economy eventually runs into a crash because it no longer can sustain all the things that have been begun, all the, all the businesses, all the loans, etc. begun during the boom. Because during the boom, many of the projects that have been invested in are what Austrian economists call malinvestments, meaning businesses that really should never have been started, loans that really should never have been made, etc. Things which only came about because of the easy credit situation. And so as a result, there's a mismatch between supply and demand. The economy in these circumstances typically produces too much of some things and then maybe not enough of others. And 
eventually when the bus sets in, this becomes apparent to people. Now, when the easy credit stops flowing for one reason or another, those malinvestments that occurred during the boom are going to start failing. And when that happens, there's a domino effect. The boom turns into a bust as businesses fail, loans are defaulted on, etc. Now, the Austrian economists, uh, if you were to ask them for how do you mitigate this, how do you prevent it, if it does happen, how do you deal with it? They would say, well, in the short term, if, if you're going into a bust, you need to let bad investments and bad businesses fail. You need to let the malinvestments fail and then let market forces of supply and demand reallocate those resources from, say, businesses that go under to more productive ventures, right? If you have a factory that's owned by a firm that goes under, the factory and its equipment doesn't disappear. It's then available to be bought up by more successful businesses. Austrians would say, it would be desirable in that situation to reduce taxes and regulations as much as possible, but they would say you really don't want to do anything, quote unquote, positive to try and fix the economy, such as lowering interest rates or subsidizing or bailing out businesses or that sort of thing. Because if you do that, what you're doing is preventing market forces from reallocating resources away from the malinvestments that occurred during the boom period. And in the long term, Austrian economists would typically recommend things like having sound money of some type, meaning money that can't be inflated at the whim of government or central banks. Most Austrian economists would probably advocate just getting rid of a central bank altogether. And many Austrian economists also oppose fractional reserve banks and would advocate having the free market set interest rates and having the free market the actual forces of supply and demand determine the availability of credit and so on so that these things will more accurately reflect the real underlying economic reality rather than just central banks orders. By the way, many of you have probably already seen these, but just in case you haven't, I'm going to link in the show notes for this episode to a couple of great YouTube rap battle videos between actors playing economist John Maynard Keynes of the Keynesian school and Friedrich Hayek of the Austrian school. And they're arguing about the cause of the business cycle and what to do about it and so on. They're really well-made videos, very funny, lots of inside econ humor worked into the videos, little Easter eggs and jokes and asides and things like that, you know, pay attention to the name tags of some of the people that they're around and whatever. And these are, these are great fun for newcomers to this stuff, but really the more you've learned and read about these sorts of things, the more you understand both the Austrian and Keynesian theories of the business cycle, the more you'll really appreciate these videos. So in terms of a serious reading, see works by people like Ludwig von Mises, Friedrich Hayek, and Murray Rothbard for in-depth versions of the Austrian theory of the business cycle. And for a more accessible introduction to this stuff for the newcomer to economics that's very, very light on the technical jargon and whatever, check out a book called How an Economy Grows and Why It Crashes by Peter Schiff and Andrew Schiff. Also, I think if I remember right, Economics in One Lesson by Henry Hazlitt, I think, has a pretty good, easy to understand explanation of all this. But anyway, after spending a number of years really intensively looking into economics and studying different economic theories of why the business cycle happens and so on, I ultimately came to the conclusion that the Austrian theory of the business cycle seems to fit better both logically internally and also seems to fit the facts of history. So, for example, 
it does a better job of explaining why there there was a nasty little economic depression in kind of 1920 to 1921, and the government at the time in the United States did pretty much nothing other than maybe some tax cuts. And it was a nasty little depression, but it was over in less than two years. By contrast, the Great Depression, which was no worse than the Depression of 1920 to 21 in its early phases in a lot of ways, ended up lingering on for something like 17 years. And it was the Great Depression where the government tried lots of, you know, bailouts and stimulus spending and all these sorts of things. So that's just one example where you can see something that, at least to me, appears to vindicate the Austrian theory of the business cycle. But your, your mileage may vary. Do your own research, your own thinking. Concept number 11 is an economic fallacy that afflicts a lot of people. It is the broken window fallacy. Ever hear people say something like, war is good for the economy, or say that some natural disaster was good for the economy somewhere? Essentially, what these sorts of statements are doing is rehashing an economic fallacy that was destroyed over 150 years ago by the French economist Frédéric Bastiat. And it was Bastiat who used the example of a broken window to illustrate this fallacy, and this is why it's gotten known to economists ever since as the broken window fallacy. So let me share with you Bastiat's words on the topic. Quote, have you ever witnessed the anger of the good shopkeeper, James Goodfellow, when his careless son has happened to break a pane of glass? If you have been present at such a scene, you will most assuredly bear witness to the fact that every one of the spectators, were there even 30 of them, by common consent apparently, offered the unfortunate owner this invariable consolation. It is an ill wind that blows nobody good. Everybody must live, and what would become of the glazers if panes of glass were never broken? Now, this form of condolence contains an entire theory, which it will be well to show up in this simple case, seeing that it is precisely the same as that which unhappily regulates the greater part of our economical institutions. Suppose it costs six francs to repair the damage, and you say that the accident brings six francs to the glazier's trade, that it encourages that trade to the amount of six francs. I grant it. I have not a word to say against it. You reason justly. The glazier comes, performs his task, receives his six francs, rubs his hands, and in his heart blesses the careless child. All this is that which is seen. But if, on the other hand, you come to the conclusion, as is so often the case, that it is a good thing to break windows, that it causes money to circulate, and that the encouragement of industry in general will be the result of it, you will oblige me to call out, stop there. Your theory is confined to that which is seen. It takes no account of that which is not seen. It is not seen that as our shopkeeper has spent six francs upon one thing, he cannot spend them upon another. It is not seen that if he had not had a window to replace, he would, perhaps, have replaced his old shoes, or added another book to his library. In short, he would have employed his six francs in some way, which this accident has prevented. End quote from Bastiat. And Bastiat was somebody who repeatedly said, and other great economists have reiterated this over the years, that to really think economically, you have to see not just what you see, but that which is unseen. So in this case, yeah, you see, oh, look at that, you know, the glazer got some money. You don't see what the shopkeeper might otherwise have used that money for. 
And it's the same thing when government taxes people or borrows money and then spends it to quote unquote create jobs. You see the jobs that are created. You don't see what the what that money and those resources would otherwise have done. Bastiat and others have also pointed out another hypothetical to further illustrate the point here. Suppose the glazer was found to be actually paying a young man one franc for each window that he smashed in town in order to increase his business. Now suppose this relationship was discovered by the public. How would it be seen? Do you think the public would approvingly thank them both for their service in helping to stimulate the economy? Somehow I don't think so. More likely, I think... They'd see them as crooks, as thieves, and rightly so. Bastiat says, quote, Society loses the value of things which are uselessly destroyed, end quote. And, quote, destruction is not profit, end quote. One can see the broken window fallacy at work in the so-called cash for clunkers program from the early days of the Obama administration, which destroyed a bunch of used but perfectly drivable cars, and got a bunch of people in debt for new cars, many of them had a hard time affording, and which distorted the automobile market in a lot of ways that were, at least in the short term, good for manufacturers and dealers of new cars, but negative for the economy and society as a whole. And war and natural disasters are just really freaking big broken windows. War may, in some rare cases, be justified. For example, trying to fight off a genuine aggression against one's home. And of course, natural disasters, they kind of are what they are. They, they can happen. And people should try to rebuild from these things. But the idea that a war or a natural disaster are actually net positives for an economy overall is not true. They might be net positives for certain individuals and certain firms, but that's only because Money and resources are redistributed or redirected to them from elsewhere. These things merely divert capital away from whatever else they might have done had the war disaster not occurred. Very similar to the broken window, right? It takes the six francs that the shopkeeper might have used for a bunch of other things that maybe he would have really rather done than replacing a window he already had that broke. So, yeah, when there's a war, the bomb company usually makes more money, but that's not the same thing as the economy as a whole and the economy of most average people actually getting better. And I once remember a long time ago seeing Peter Schiff on a show somewhere, and he was talking about this, this false belief that war is, is a net positive for an economy. And he gave a wonderful analogy that really illustrated the futility of it. Peter Schiff said, look, if the so-called military Keynesians, which are the people who think that spending on a big war is great for the economy, if they're really right, then, and this was back maybe in 2009 that he was saying this when the crash was still really bad. Well, the US and Japan both are having economic problems. And why don't we fix both of our economies by simulating the financial and resources of resource effects of war while avoiding the the tragic you know human loss of life and so on and so what peter schiff proposed was having the united states and japan each spend enormous amounts of money on top-notch state-of-the-art massive naval fleets i mean all the bells and whistles you know, the most expensive aircraft carriers and battleships and I mean, just everything, right? Just spend it all. 
Okay. And then what you do is the, the Japanese and American fleets, they meet at some predetermined coordinates in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. And now, of course, we're trying to simulate the economic part of war without the loss of life, right? So what, what they'll do is they'll sail these fleets out, meet in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, and then each will scuttle their fleet and kind of, you know, get away on Zodiacs or whatever. Um, and then this will simulate what happens with giant spending on the war. And this will bring both the United States and Japan out of their economic problems, right? Well, I'm sure it probably sounds ridiculous to you. But that's essentially what people are saying when they're saying that a massive war is good for the economy. They're saying that diverting all the resources and manpower and expertise of an economy towards blowing stuff up and that kind of stuff is going to fix an economy. Now, it may or may not be necessary. That's a, that's a different argument. It may or may not be necessary to fight a particular war. But either way, it means that you're diverting all kinds of resources and expertise and manpower and every kind of capital into uses that are not actually making regular people's lives any better, right? I mean, $1,000 put into building another bomb to drop on Tokyo is not going to do as much as a thousand bucks invested into, I don't know, making more fuel efficient cars to actually improve people's quality of life and standard of living. Now, what Bastiat is really talking about in his story of the glazer is actually a concept that's going to be my 12th concept to cover, which is opportunity costs. In a way, this is one of the main things that Bastiat's parable of the broken window is illustrating. In that case, the unseen costs for the shopkeeper, and by extension of society at large, of having to spend his money on fixing a broken window rather than on any number of other things. Opportunity costs is one of those things that is very simple, but has a lot of profound implications as a concept. The idea that using finite resources for one purpose means that they're just not available for other purposes. And what opportunity cost specifically is zeroing in on is the value of whatever the next best alternative those resources might have been put to that they weren't. That's what really constitutes opportunity costs in economics. This is a very important concept, for example, to understanding the true costs of what the massive military-industrial complex spending that the U.S. has been running for over 70 years since World War II has robbed the American people of. And I mentioned this idea way back in an episode I did entitled, It's 2015, So Where's My Hoverboard? Not only did tons of money and physical resources of all types get consumed by the military-industrial complex, but perhaps even more detrimental, many of the most brilliant minds in America have gone to work there, because that's where all the resources are diverted to, rather than in private industry making things of use to consumers. So we get bigger H-bombs instead of flying cars or cures for cancer, who the hell knows what else. And don't take my word for it, you can take that of General-slash-President Dwight D. Eisenhower himself, who repeatedly, while president, said things like this. And again, in that episode, it's 2015, where's my hoverboard? I think I shared some quotes from him, where he says, look, all the money that we dump into more tanks is money that's not going to hospitals or building better roads or whatever. Now, I probably would disagree with Eisenhower on, on who should be deploying those resources. He probably would lean more towards having 
the state building the roads and the hospitals and whatever. But regardless, his point is valid. The, the opportunity costs. You dump all your resources into the military industrial complex. Don't be surprised when your roads are falling apart and you know you don't have good consumer goods and whatever. Now in America, by contrast with say the Soviet Union, we still had decent consumer goods through the Cold War, you know, by comparison. But it begs the question, right? If there hadn't been so much wealth and brain power and other resources diverted into the military industrial complex, how much better might we have had it? The unseen. One of the few things that most schools of economics, other than maybe some wild-eyed utopian versions of it, actually agree on is that scarcity is a fact of existence. By scarcity is meant simply the fact that there's just never enough of resources to satisfy everyone's desires all the time, all at once. This is a very important thing to understand, both in studying an economy from kind of a bird's eye view perspective, and also in something like, for example, running a business down from a more worm's eye perspective. How are you spending your time, money, and other resources? What are the alternatives you could be devoting them to? Are you certain that what you are devoting those resources to is in fact their best use for you and your goals? This concept has a lot of relevance to daily life, not just to understanding economic theory, but to actual daily life. Though I have to say, when I'm applying this concept to my life, I don't just think about the next best alternative which technically in economics is all that opportunity cost is really concerned with. But I'm thinking about all potentially good alternatives. And a lot of times these are things that are very hard to quantify in some sort of ordinate order, like which one is best, second best, third best, etc. A lot of times it's very hard to do that objectively. You can do that in the financial realm because you can look at profit and loss. But if you're trying to look at, say, how do I want to spend my time in life? Finances is only one of many variables to consider. The reality is everything is a trade-off. If all you care about in life is maximizing your wealth and income, that means you're going to be devoting your time, energy, and resources to that. And as a result, these sorts of things are zero-sum in a lot of cases, and it will simply be impossible for you to simultaneously, for example, be the best parent you can be to your children, or be the best spouse you can be to your spouse or something like that, right? I'm not saying that one alternative is better than the other. That is a very subjective call depending on each individual's priorities and values and whatever. But I'm just pointing out that logically, the more time, resources, energy, etc. you devote to one thing you do in life, the less is available for some other alternative. And this is true also in the case of acquiring skills, of cultivating skills. An individual human being can only become truly masterful in a relatively small selection of skills in their lifetime. And I say this as someone who, as many of you know, have listened to this podcast for a while, as somebody who advocates for maximizing one's own versatility as much as possible. Still, I acknowledge the reality that nobody has infinite resources, time most of all. And speaking of myself as an example, I understand that because of some interest that I've chosen to pursue in life, I've not been able to pursue others that I also thought were cool and that I was interested in and that were potentially valuable to me. So, for example, when I got heavily into playing music as a teenager, I just kind of gradually gave up for the most part on visual arts, which was something I'd been heavily into since I was a little kid. 
more recently, putting a lot of my spare time and energy and other resources into podcasting has, by default, reduced how much I put into things I also like, such as playing music and writing fiction, things which I used to do a lot and which I now only do occasionally. Now, I'm not saying you can't go back to something after setting them aside for a while, but I'm just emphasizing that everything is finite, everything is a trade-off, and there are opportunity costs to every choice you make. And no matter how much you love the thing that you do choose, that doesn't change the fact that there are still alternatives that you're going to be foregoing that were also potentially good or even great as well. Truly grasping the deep implications of this concept, this deceptively simple concept, has really caused me, I've got to say, over the last seven or eight years, to drastically reevaluate how I spend my time, my money, my energy, my other resources. And the most precious, the most finite resource any human being ever has is time. You can usually figure out how to get more of some other resource, even if it is quite scarce. You can usually figure out how to acquire more money if that's what you need, how to acquire more of some other resource, or how to acquire more knowledge, whatever. But acquiring more time doesn't really work out. Which, by the way, as an aside, is why I am extremely honored and humbled that so many of you share so much of your time listening to this podcast. I really do appreciate your time, and I really do hope that I don't waste it. But once I understood opportunity cost, I realized a lot of what I was spending my resources on was simply poor usages of it, especially of time. For example, eight or ten years ago, something like that, I used to follow and care about conventional politics quite a lot. I would get all stressed out about elections or about things going on in D.C., over which, by the way, I had zero real influence whatsoever. And I would get depressed if things didn't go the way I thought they should, which was, of course, the vast majority of the time. And by contrast now, and for quite a few years now, I just don't really follow current events very closely most of the time, unless there's something I'm interested in or something like that. And when I do check in on politics in particular these days, it's mostly just so I can get a good laugh at just how absurd the freak show known as American politics has gotten. And it just always seems like just when I think it can't get any more stupid and ridiculous, like clockwork, it sinks to a new low and it proves me wrong. But I've got to say, the time, the energy, the emotion that I used to dump into that stupid, silly spectacle known as American politics, all those resources are now placed in things that actually improve my quality of life rather than degrading it. All I ever got from investing time and energy into following politics was disappointment and depression. Now I put those resources into things that actually improve things. Opportunity costs are a concept that just affects all that you do in life. I think that failure to truly ponder this concept and how it applies to you as an individual could potentially lead you to absent-mindedly make decisions you'll later regret. And I'm talking both about big decisions and also about the cumulative effects of lots of smaller bad decisions, which often in the long term harm you more than just one big bad decision does. So it's something that probably many of you think about consciously, but if you don't, you really should. Opportunity costs. 
Another thing that can mess you up is not properly understanding another important economic concept, which is going to be concept number 13, the law of diminishing marginal utility. Now, don't let the name frighten you. I know it sounds intimidating, but the actual concept really isn't. My layman's understanding of the law of diminishing marginal utility is as follows. The more units of something you acquire, the less benefit or utility you get from each additional unit. Now, I'm probably butchering it from like what a purebred economic expert would say about it, but I think my caveman layman version of it is pretty useful and is close enough that it works for my purposes. The more units of something you acquire, the less benefit or utility you get from each individual unit. Just think about that in terms of goods that you can potentially acquire. If you don't have a car and you need a car and you get a car, that car provides a lot of utility for you, right? But let's say then somebody just randomly gives you a second car. What would most people do in that situation, assuming you're just, you know, a single person, you don't have have a spouse or some other relative you can give it to, right? Most people in that situation would sell the car, would at least would sell like whichever of the two cars you now have that you like the least or whatever, and only have one. Because the utility you get from having a car isn't doubled by having a second car. Now imagine, let's take another example. What about home security? Suppose you're somebody who is concerned about some basic home security, and so you invest in a few things to make your home more secure and, and harder for burglars to get into, and and more likely that if one does come in, you can deal with it. Like, let's say you put in a basic alarm system, maybe you buy a dog, maybe you buy a gun of some sort to prop on your nightstand, and you say, okay, you know, I've got the basics of security covered now. But Let's suppose you decide, I still don't feel secure enough, and you have a second alarm system installed right alongside your first, and you get four more dogs, and you get five more guns, and you stack them all on top of each other on your nightstand. Are you actually like multiple times safer than if you just had one alarm, one dog, one gun? Obviously, you're not. And in fact, if you go too crazy on it, you'll actually make yourself less secure because if you spend yourself into bankruptcy, if you say, man, if one gun makes me safe, then 500 guns makes me 500 times safer. Then if you do something crazy like that, you're more likely to spend yourself into bankruptcy and end up living in a box under a bridge. And you'll actually be way less secure than you were when you were at home with one alarm system, one dog, one gun. Now, do you see the analogy of this to, I don't know, the American military industrial complex? Even within the status paradigm, there is a point of diminishing utility and diminishing returns when it comes to something like defense spending, right? If you really do think that the Uzbekistanis or whoever are going to come steamrolling into Pismo Beach and that America needs to have some nukes to defend against this, okay, fine. But like, at what point is it silly where... You, you're like, okay, we have 5,000 H-bombs. Um, does that mean we're 5,000 times safer than if we just had like 50? So there's a point in any good, there's a point at which you reach diminishing marginal utility. And as an individual, this is true of just about any good you can think of acquiring. Now, in the case of some goods, you might initially get more utility uh, as you continue to acquire more units of it, although probably you'll never get the same amount of utility or benefit or whatever you want to call it as you did from the very first one. But, you know, there might be some cases where if you acquire two or three or four of 
something, you might actually get some real benefit. But eventually, if you keep acquiring more of whatever it is, you're going to reach a point of diminishing utility. And so this has relevance looking at a big picture, something like a government or an economy, and then also has clear relevance to all of us as individuals. And it's something I need to keep reminding myself of. All of us have certain things that we just kind of like, and we might have a tendency to dump more of our resources than we should on certain goods. And I'm as guilty of this as anybody, so I'm not not excluding myself. For a long time, I had more guitars than I really not not just that I than I needed, but that I could play on a regular basis. Honestly, I used to have like six, seven, eight guitars, and a few years back, I sold them all off except for two. I kept one electric and one acoustic. And with that one electric and that one acoustic, I can do pretty much anything I want to do. And I don't have, you know, six other guitars laying around, rarely getting played, taking up space, etc. So this concept, the law of diminishing marginal utility, if you keep that one in mind and keep opportunity costs in mind as things that people are prone to not taking into account in their daily lives, I, th- I think that you can avoid mistakes and pitfalls and things like this. I, I know that it's helped me to improve things a bit since I understood these concepts. And it doesn't mean, though, that you'll never make mistakes or do things you regret. I certainly still do those things. I just do them less often than I used to. And when you do make mistakes, whether it's because you failed to consider opportunity costs or whether it's because you failed to consider diminishing marginal utility or whatever other reason, you really need to know when to cut your losses, to not reinforce failure, to not dump good money or resources after bad, etc. Which brings us to our last concept for this episode, the sunk costs fallacy. Ever sat on a bench or a curb waiting for a ride or a bus or a train or whatever that just didn't show up? In that situation, have you ever found yourself waiting there a lot longer than you really should have, but you kind of felt like you had to because You've already waited so long that you didn't want to give, you didn't want all the waiting you'd done up till that point to be wasted because somehow you just knew that if you got up and started walking to your destination or looking for another means of getting there, then the time you've spent waiting on that ride that never came was wasted. And of course, maybe somewhere in the back of your mind, you kept thinking, you know, if I get up and and head out somewhere else, probably within a minute or two, my ride is going to show up, right? Well, maybe you've had that situation happen to you, maybe you haven't. But either way, probably all of you listening have found yourself staying in a relationship or a job long after it should have been obvious to you that it was dead end and that soon, the sooner you were out of there, the better. You should have realized this, but you didn't. I know because I've been there. Probably all of you have at least once in your life. But somehow when you're in that situation, you have a tendency to feel like if you leave that job or that relationship, then the months or years of your life that you've already spent in it, that you've already invested in it are somehow wasted. And so eh, you just better stay no matter how miserable you are, no matter how dead end things seem, because you don't want your prior investment to go to waste. Well, if anything like that has ever happened to you, you've been victim of the sunk costs fallacy and congratulations It just means you're a member of the human species. The sunk cost fallacy is a flawed way of thinking that the human mind is very tragically prone to. 
in which a person justifies increased investment in something based on their previous investment in it, rather than on the likelihood that increased investment is going to yield some kind of benefit. In fact, to the contrary, when one is under the spell of the sunk cost fallacy, you're probably dumping additional resources into something in the face of massive evidence that should suggest to you that the investment won't lead to a net benefit, but you're doing it anyway. Here's a small-scale example from my own personal life. Probably many of you have had this happen as well. When I was younger, say from when I was a kid up until maybe my early 20s or mid-20s or so, I would very often, if I started reading a book or watching a movie that wasn't very good, I'd still finish it. And in hindsight, I now realize that at least part of why I would do that, why I would finish a book or a movie, even though in the first 15, 20% of it, I realized it wasn't very good, was kind of the sunk cost fallacy. I was like, well, I read this far, might as well finish it. Well, I've watched this much of it, might as well finish it. Now, and probably for at least the last 10 years or so, I'm pretty ruthless. I now give up on a book or a movie that doesn't grab me in some way in the first 15 or 20% of it. So that's just a little little place where I no longer waste as much time as I used to doggedly finishing up books and movies that are not very good. And it's not just ones that are terribly bad. Like, I've always been willing to set aside a book or a movie that was just awful. But I used to tolerate and see through to the bitter end ones that were just kind of blah, just kind of mediocre. And now, not to hell with it. I don't do that. And of course, there are lots of huge examples of the sunk cost fallacy at work. You can see it in countless government programs of all sorts, everything from education to welfare state type programs and on and on and on. Things which often fail to achieve the results that were promised. In many cases, things get worse. The problems they were supposed to solve get worse. And instead of getting canned, these things linger on forever and often just keep getting funding increases. You can see this in a lot of major military industrial complex projects. For example, the F-35. And you can see it in a lot of wars as well. You can see it in Vietnam, in Iraq, in Afghanistan, just to name a couple of big famous recent wars in U.S. history, where the U.S. military lingered long after it really should have been obvious to a reasonable person that the conflict was, A, most likely unwinnable, and B, even on the outside chance that it could somehow be won, the benefit of winning would be minuscule compared to the costs involved in getting that win. And the U.S. military lingered on despite that, and it did so at least in part because of a belief that the money, lives, and other resources dumped into the conflict earlier on would be quote-unquote wasted if victory wasn't achieved. And this is why you find warhawk politicians describing leaving an obviously failed war as quote-unquote cutting and running. And of course, everybody who's lost a friend in that war feels like, oh, the sacrifice was in vain if victory is not achieved. And so you end up staying in a war that you cannot win for 15 years, when after just a couple of years, it should have been obvious to a rational observer that this is not something that is going to be successful. And the sooner you can stop dumping lives and resources into it, the better. Not that I'm expecting that states are ever going to start acting rationally, public choice and other things tell us that they will not. But the sunk cost fallacy illustrates one of the things at work that causes them to doggedly stick to policies or wars or whatever that clearly are not going to work. I'm not saying the sunk cost fallacy is the only reason. There's also all of those ulterior financial motives that the public choice theorists tell us about at work and other things as well. 
But the sunk cost fallacy is at least part of the explanation of why this is happening, psychologically. By the way, I've found that the older I get, and I'm going to be turning 35 in a couple of months now, the older I get, the more opportunity costs and sunk costs weigh on my thinking about things. Because each year that you get older is a year less that you have available for things. So I tend to give a lot more thought to opportunity costs, and I try a lot harder to avoid falling for the sunk cost fallacy than I did when I was in my 20s or teens, when I really gave almost no thought to these things at all. And I'm pretty sure when I'm in my 40s, these things are going to be even more important to me in making decisions about what I do with my time and other resources. So anyway, that gets us through number 14 on my 21 key concepts. If you want to hear my coverage of concepts 15 through 21, which again will be a diverse grab bag, it will be coming out in the next probably week or two on Patreon, again, available for those of you who help out the Dangerous History Podcast with a pledge there of a dollar or more per episode. I hope that the time that you've spent listening to this has not been a sunk cost. Thank you for listening to the Dangerous History Podcast. Please check out the website, profcj.org. That's profcj.org. There you can find show notes for all the episodes, links, and other information. You can also email subscribe to the website by putting in your email in the little subscribe box off to the side there. And if you do that, you'll get an email notification every time something new is posted at the website. I promise you won't get any spam or anything uh, from me if you sign up there. You'll just get an announcement every time something new is posted on the website, which most of the time means a new episode, but occasionally is another sort of announcement or what have you. Please feel free to contact me with questions, comments, or other things. The email address is profcj at profcj.org. That's profcj at profcj.org. You can also connect with the show and follow it on social media, like us on Facebook, follow on Twitter, and you can find the show in podcast venues such as iTunes and Stitcher. You can subscribe there. Uh, by subscribing in iTunes, you'll help the show rise in the iTunes charts, and of course that will help grow the show's audience. If you like this show and want to see it continue to keep going and to grow and to improve, there are a lot of ways you can help support it. One is simply to spread the word about the Dangerous History podcast to anyone you think might appreciate it. You can also help spread the word by leaving ratings and reviews in podcast venues like iTunes and Stitcher. And of course, we very much need and appreciate financial support. You can go to profcj.org donate to see a whole bunch of different ways that you would help the show out financially. One, of course, is patreon.com profcj, where if you pledge to help out the show with a donation of at least $1 per episode, Remember, not only will I thank you by name in the next episode that I make, but you'll also have access to bonus episodes that I put there periodically that are available nowhere else. You can also make one-time or recurring donations via PayPal at profcj.org donate, and I have a Bitcoin address if you want to donate that way. And of course, a final way you can help out the show financially is when you do your Amazon shopping, go to Amazon through any of my affiliate Amazon links on my website. And if you do that, the Dangerous History Podcast will get a small cut, a little commission from anything you purchase at no additional cost to you. Thanks again for listening. This has been another episode of the Dangerous History Podcast, helping you learn the past so you can understand the present and prepare for the future.